Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And today, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit may come and teach us all. For we sit at your feet, for we are your family. And we pray for everyone in this room, that, Lord, your anointing would fall upon them, that your blessing would be upon them, and that their ears would be open to hear your word, and that their heart would have a readiness to perform it. We can hear and not be doers of your word. We can hear, but it doesn't sink in. It, it has that effect like water rolling off a duck's back. But Lord, we want your word to penetrate our mind and our hearts. We want your word, Lord, to establish our going in and our coming out. We want your word to be over every thought that we have. And we want your word, O oh God, to be in our mouths. That, Lord, when someone, Lord, asks us of the hope that lieth in us, that, Lord, we are ready, O oh God, to give them your word, not our opinion. Lord, may you minister to us this morning in your word. May you show us and reveal to us a little bit more of why the millennium takes place. Why you reign for that thousand years. And what effects it will have upon people. And Lord will give you the praise in Jesus name. Amen. Some of you may be asking, why study about end times? Why even go through this when uh, maybe we're maybe this close to it, but we're not here yet. Let me remind you that the word says, no man knoweth the day or the hour in which the Lord is going to come. But the reason we look at it is this. How many of you have children? How many of you have grandchildren? How many of you want to see them go to hell? If we don't warn, and if we don't instruct, and we don't teach, then that's where they're going. If we don't instruct, and we don't teach, then that's where they're going. And it may not be this generation in which the Lord will come. But look at your children. He may come in their generation. And look at your grandchildren. They may come. Without knowledge... The Lord says, my people do what? Perish. So what we're doing is giving knowledge. That you may be able to sit at your dinner table. You may be able to sit in your backyard on the swing. You may best be walking with your children. And you're able to talk with them and share with them. About the things of the Lord. And what is yet to come. That they could be looking forward to this coming and what's going to take place. We may be seeing some of the signs. They will see more of the signs. And others will see more. If the question would be asked, because it says in Jeremiah that, boy, Israel will dwell in safety. Well, right now that isn't happening, is it? 
So we know we're a little ways off yet. Because Israel not really dwelling in safety. But there will be a day in millennium period. In which Israel will dwell in total safety. Because the king of kings and the peace and the prince of peace will be the one in charge of it all. Now, the question that you and I have to ask is, why this millennium and whose fault is it? Whose fault is it if you're not one of the rulers with Jesus Christ? Whose fault is it if you're not there as one of the saints in authority with Jesus Christ? Whose fault is it if you're not even there in the first resurrection? Whose fault is it? And you have to ask yourself. Because what God sets up the millennium for is to show forth that it is definitely not his fault. It is definitely not his fault. Is one of the main reasons that the millennium is set up. That God can show to man his own wicked heart, his own evilness. And man comes up, as we talked about a little bit last week, we're just going to review just a little bit there. Because see, God sets up an environment in the millennium that he had in the garden. He sets that up. Do we, as Christians, do we really believe that we are saved to do good works? And sometimes people get caught up on that issue of good works. Good works is what we see Jesus doing all through the gospel. Good works are meant to be helpful to humanity. Good works has at its root basis the thing of being kind unto an unkind people who are not deserving of the kindness and the goodness of God, but yet knowing it is the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. And as Christians, we are to show that kindness And we are to do good works. The most powerful thing about the church is that if it can learn to cooperate with itself. Rather than to compete with itself. That we can do a far better job of meeting the needs of people than what the world can. But because there's so much competition between ourselves. We do very little. Some Christians think that it is wrong to do good works because they very quickly put it over into the social gospel. Oftentimes in social gospel and good works, it's not an issue about Jesus Christ being Savior. But those who do good works and understand the main purpose of it is to understand that these are only seeds thrown in order to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and to share with people the love of Christ. 
understanding that everything Christians do ought to be done with the purpose of presenting Jesus. Bringing people to a place to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. People forget, especially Christians, we are the salt of the world. What does that mean? We are the salt of the world. Salt is used for two things and two things only. It is to flavor or season and it is to preserve. That's all. Nothing else. Now, if those who are believers and are the saved ones are the salt, then we are the preservers, in a sense, of humanity and hold back, in a sense, the wrath of God coming because we are preserving this world. We're kind of like holding back. We're the dam that holds back that wrath of God coming because we are the ones who preserve. And God sees us at work and He said, there's still hope. There's still hope. And oftentimes we don't like to be seen as the salt, the preserving. Because it does take an action. Because see, when you sprinkle salt on something, it finds its way of touching everything in the pot. (laughs) And Christians ought to find a way of touching everyone in our community and in Akron and around the world. And it's so easy to say, that's too hard to do. And that's what happens with most churches. We come to that place and we say, this is too hard to do. This is too hard to do. This is going to cost too much. But none of us have come to the place where we have shed our blood for anyone else. What we need to understand is this. People... Doing what they do with their best efforts have not really succeeded. People still do not have a perfect environment to grow up in. And what man is saying is this. God, give me a good environment and I'll be all right. Give me a good environment and I won't sin. Give me a good education and, and, and some intellect and I'll be all right. Give me enough money. And God, you, you won't have to even interfere. I'll take care of it all. God, give me a nice home with beautiful grass that you don't have to cut. Isn't that right, Travis? 
Give me that. And I'll be all right. And what man stands before God and says, in a sense, God, you didn't do this. You didn't help with this. You didn't give me knowledge of this. And we look for a way. And this is one of the main areas where Christians get mad at God. They blame God for their circumstances. They blame God for their hurt, for their pain, for their misfortune, for not gaining this or gaining that. Never looking at that God loves them so much and God knows what they have need of that God won't grant it because we're not there yet. You're not mature enough yet. You're not ready for that yet. Or God wants you to go in a total different direction than what you're bent on doing. God changes that direction. And what we forget is that we're not fighting in this present time against each other. Go to Ephesians 6.12 real quick. Before we read Revelation. Go to Ephesians 6.12. Because see, God's going to remove all of my excuses. I won't be able to say, boy, Satan did this. Some demon made me do it. The devil, boy, if he wouldn't have got in there, I've been all right. For he says in 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms, we're fighting something else other than flesh and blood, other than ourselves. And you know what God does in the millennium? He removes all that. He removes all that. He seals Satan for a thousand years. For you can't say, well, boy, it was some demon, it was Satan, it was the devil, it it was this. He removes that. And all you can look at is yourself. He removes it. What people have never been able to do, Jesus does in the millennium. Setting forth a perfect environment for people. Now I want you to think with me towards the end of the millennium. Because see the population is going to grow during the millennium. But the question is at the end of the millennium when Satan is let loose just for a little while. How is it that so quickly he's able to mass such a large army? See, the only real influence in the millennium is Jesus Christ. That's it. And Matthew thirteen forty three may have a little part in saying, boy, his saints will shine as stars and Boy, we who are ruling with him, we shine as a witness to what he's able to do. 
But yet, at the same time, there are those who will very quickly join Satan. Not because some devil made them do it. They can't blame anything else. And this is the same thing that we battle today. Is it really in your heart to serve the Lord? It's not with your mouth. It's with the heart. That you serve the Lord. You serve Him. You give yourself to Him totally. Because you're there in that perfect environment, no excuse. The millennium is the last event that takes place on this old earth. If you include the war with it. It's the last thing that really takes place before a new heaven and a new earth. From the millennium, you have the war, then you have the white throne judgment. But the white throne judgment takes place where at? In heaven, not here on earth. So the millennium is the last thing in a sense that really takes place here. And then after the white throne judgment is done, and those who are going to taste their second death, boy, guess what? A new heaven and new earth comes in. So this millennium is the last test for humanity that God sets up to show people it's a heart thing. It's a heart thing. And that if you really love Him, nothing separates you from Him. If you really love Him. If you really do love Him. Him. Important events during the millennium. Jesus is on earth. Boy, just think about that. Jesus is on earth. People will be able to see him. He's there in bodily form. And guess what? He's never to leave his people again. He'll never again be be separated from his people. He's on earth in the millennium. Once he comes in that second coming, he never leaves his people again. From that point on, he's always with the saints. Satan is bound. His activities are restricted. He cannot deceive an Eve. Adam has nobody to blame. The people have the environment of an Adam. Guess what? Really don't have to work hard. Because the Lord says you will have an abundance of crops. Won't be nobody hungry. Won't be nobody poor. Because the Lord says he will cause you all to prosper. But for 
people had the free choice to worship and obey Jesus. That's the free choice that you're going to have with nobody interfering with your choice. With nobody telling you ought to do this or you should do this. Nobody waking you up on Sunday morning saying, Get ready for church! Hey. Nobody trying to convince you whether you should be saved or not. Hey. He brings it back to the same free will that Adam and Eve had. A choice to obey, to serve, to love him, to acknowledge him, or not to. It's your choice to either reject him or receive him. And though people will see him for themselves, they will reject For faith cometh by hearing. Hearing of what? Hearing of the word of God. There are those that, boy, you can talk to, talk to, talk to, talk to. Yes, you're sharing with them. But who has to receive it? Yeah. Yeah. And what God is lying is to know, the only true faith really does come by hearing, hearing what? The word of God. Everything else is not the Word of God. Everything else will not give you saving faith. But the Word of God, if you entertain it and you bring it in, it will release you from bondage. It will set you free. For the truth sets you free. And the whole process, if you will hear it and receive it, it does something. But you have to be willing to hear it and receive it. And allow it to do its perfect work in you. Because God said, my word will go forth and it will accomplish what I so desire in every individual's life. But you have to receive it. You have to believe it. You have to love it. You have to want it. And like Melvin's talking about in one of the verses, discipline. The word of God disciplines you. In which manner? To live godly. To live holy. To be an individual who disciplines himself. That he has the mind of Christ in order that he might live as Christ. The people have a free choice. To either worship and obey. We don't have that much freedom today. But oftentimes, we got somebody saying we ought to be doing what? This or doing that. A thousand years doesn't change the heart. And that's the other thing the millennium is going to show for. Satan is locked up for a thousand years. But the moment Satan is set free, what does he want to do? Fight against God. Fight against the Lord Jesus Christ. A thousand years of being in prison did not change his heart. And we're finding that out in the reality of life. You can lock somebody up 40 years, 30 years, 20. It doesn't change sometimes their what? Their heart. It has to be a heart change. And what God revealed 
For a thousand years, Satan never changed his ways. But yet, for people who have seen Jesus Christ for a thousand years, and yet can very quickly leave out of an imperfect environment and go join Satan to fight against Christ, the heart has not been changed. The heart has not been changed. And what we have to recognize, it really is a heart change that has to take place. People work on trying to improve their old nature. Now understand, you can take an old house and you can remodel it, but it's still what? An old house. I mean, you can tear out walls and you can do things and remodel and that's all you've done. And some of us in our life as Christians, that's all we've tried to do is remodel ourselves. We haven't died. We haven't tore down the old nature. We haven't tore down the old man. We haven't tore down the old life. That God can build a new one. We just try to remodel. We do a quick makeover that's supposed to be accepted, but underneath the makeover is what? Still the reality. The old nature cannot be improved on. And we have to understand that. And the only way you can deal with the old nature is that you see it dead. Dead. And that God is creating a new creation in you. And not you're constantly going back and forth, back and forth, because you're trying to tear down something, you're trying to re-wreck something, and what God wants you to do is die to self. That He can transform and build something totally new and different. That when you look in the mirror, you'll be able to say, the old has gone and the new has come. And you'll know it. You'll know it. Now, people are going through the millennium will experience these things. Obeying without knowing Jesus as Savior. We have a lot of Christians that do that. We obey the rule and we act really like the Pharisees, but we don't want to be called what? Pharisees. We, we follow the law. Not so much from the heart, but we follow it because we know if we don't follow it, something bad may happen to us. That's not the reason to follow Jesus Christ, that something bad will happen to you. You follow Him because you love Him. You follow Him because you understand The price he paid to purchase you. You follow him. Not because everything will be roses and peaches and life real easy. You follow him from the heart because you love him. You love him. That's why Jesus puts his command in this thing. Boy, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Why? It has to be done out of love. Not out of legalism. 
Not out of what I'm going to prosper from it. But that the heart really loves him. And what you do is always out of that area of love for his work. The love of his kingdom. The love of him. And they will experience this Savior by seeing him. Seeing him in his glory. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And they will see that. And they will recognize that he really is the Savior. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. And the issue is to really recognize him. And they're going to see it. But then the response. As we go through this a little bit, I want you to take note of what what people are going to see. What people are going to experience. And then ask yourself this question. How could they abandon him? After he allows them to live this type of life. And the question is, is life better with Jesus or is life better without Jesus? And for some people, with this free will that we have, will always come up with this. Life is better without Jesus ruling over me. You are a disaster without Christ being the head of your life. We need to understand that. We are a disaster. This little tongue can set a city on fire. The things that we can do to each other if Christ were not the head of our lives. So in Isaiah 11, pick it up with verses 4 and 5, he says, But with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice. He will give... Decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. With the breath. You do something wrong in the millennium. You're not waiting to be judged. You are judged instantly. Evilness and wickedness will not be tolerated. You say, isn't God merciful? Yes, He is. Because whatever hell might be, God could have made it ten times worse. It will not be tolerated. Then He says in 5, Righteousness will be His belt, and faithfulness His slash around His waist. Now, come on down with me in 6-9. through Listen to what he's going to say. The wolf will live with the lamb. No such thing today. That's a good old lamb chop to a real wolf. The leopard will lie down with the goat. That's not possible today. Not even feasible. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. A little child is going to lead a lamb. I was watching nature, um, animal kingdom, and I didn't know that the claws of a lion, when it attacks, 
come out as much as 10 inches. And until it's attacking, it's withdrawn in. And you only see a little bit of them. But when they attack and grab hold, those claws come out 10 inches into the skin on the high of its captive. And it's like locking on. And see what we don't understand in this day? Boy, Scripture says Satan, he roams around looking for who he can devour, who he can attack. And just think, if his claws come out ten inches and grab hold of you, how hard it is to get loose. And he says, boy, they're going to lie down. They're going to lie down. And he says, the cow will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The lion? Lion is basically what kind of eater? Yeah. They're going to have straw. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. How many of you will allow your child to play around a cobra? But he says in the millennium that would take place. What I'm trying to picture for you to see is the changes that take place in the millennium to what is taking place today. And yet people will witness this. And yet, join Satan very quickly. And he, and he goes on. He simply says, The infant will play with the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. Oh, and be safe. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. We need to understand. Now, I hope I can paint this little picture. The people in the millennium who do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ is like a lot of people in the church. Conformity takes place, but the heart is never changed. Conformity takes place. For I know how to jump and shout. I know how to say hallelujah. Got my own little tone. Everybody in the church know when I say it. I even know how to wave my hand in a holy, godly fashion. And I even know how to even most of to the preacher. Go on! Go on! I know all the rituals of the church. And I have conformed to the religion of the day. I have conformed to the church style of today. And many of those people who will go through the millennium seeing Jesus Christ will conform 
to obedience to His Word, but never a heart change. And many people in the church has conformed to the Word in a sense, in a legal fashion, but there's never been a heart change. Elaine and I, When we were dating, we broke up about four or five times. But one day, boy, it really struck me. I really do want this girl to be my wife. And from that point on, I started seriously running after her. Now, once you catch the word, seriously running after her. Go to work all day in a car wash. Take that girl to eat and she done spent every dime I done work eight hours for in about 25 minutes. <laughs> Couldn't go to McDonald's. We had to go to San Giannini's. We had to go to Yakimini's. Hey. We had to go to this kind of restaurant. I ain't never been in a restaurant all my life. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm there. Spending everything I got that I ain't worked all, all day, Saturday for, thinking I'm going to have a little money for lunch on Monday when I go to school. And go to school broke. Because this young lady... Got me chasing after her. When your heart is fixed on God and you're chasing after Him, you will spend everything of your life for Him. Because you love Him. It just won't be an outward show. It won't be just something where you conform for a little bit. But it will be a heart thing. It will be a heart thing. And many of us, and that's why the Lord says the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it but who? But God, because in our conformity, it becomes much like when we tell a lie, that after we tell a lie so much, who begins to believe the lie? And there's that conformity without the inward reality of Jesus. Then there's no war. Micah says, boy, they beat their swords into plowshares and into fishing hooks and so forth. Those who are put to death are put to death by the Lord. Not by men. Not by men. But by the Lord. So there will 
be longevity. And he said in Isaiah that a child can be a hundred years old and be a child. Is there for a reason. Because oftentimes we say, Lord, if you just gave me a little bit more time, Lord, you just give me a little bit more time, I'll get my act together. And we're here now. Uh, I'm not ready yet. I gotta get me together. You can't never get me together. That's something you can't do. The only one who can do that is the Lord. Thank you. And the whole process is that you think if you have a little bit more time to work on yourself, that you can get you together. Let me, let me share this with you. It's impossible for you to do it. If you could have done that, if we could have done that, Christ would have never had to go to a cross. Not going to read for to for sake of time. Where else we're going? But get a chance read it. People will live a long life. Read it. Read what Isaiah twenty twenty two says. Read it. And there, guess what? In this perfect environment, there's no divorce. So children can't go around blaming my parents messed my life up. My parents did this. My parents did that. There's no divorce in the millennium. There's no physical problems. Why? There's no diseases. There's no diseases. So we don't need no doctors. We only got one lawyer, Jesus Christ, because he will settle all arguments, it says in the Word. There's no drunkenness. Praise the Lord. There's no drunkenness. There's no addictions. How many people do you know that blame the reason that they can't walk uprightly with the Lord is because of their addiction? Yeah. God takes that excuse away. He removes it. And there's no poor. And the thing sometimes with poor people, they don't go to church because they don't have the right clothing. They don't have the right this. They don't have the right that. God removes whatever the excuse is of the poor that they can come. And there's no hunger because there's plenty for everybody. That's just a little picture of what God's doing in the millennium period. And how can people then, after being with Jesus for a length of time, boy, walk away the moment Satan is loose. And the only way that can happen is that there's never been a heart change. Even by what all that you've seen and all that you witness, there's not a heart change. There's not a heart change. Now, who rules with Jesus during this time? Go back to Revelation chapter 20. Who rules with Jesus and then 
Why do they get that privilege of ruling with Jesus? Why do they get that privilege? Why don't the people in the millennium period who are Christians, why don't they get to rule and let them other folks stay on up in heaven? And Jesus come on down and he can put us on the throne and give us authority. Well, there's a reason for that. One of the things that we blame God for is not giving us good, wise individuals over our law, over our lives, over our law, over our government. This election is really showing something. The question was asked, is the rest of the world laughing at us? Yes, they are. Okay. But in the millennium, Jesus Christ sets up a government with righteous people. He sets up a ruling class that is loyal to him and has proven that loyalty. He sets up and gives authority to those who he knows truly love him. So when we get in that chapter 20 and verse 4, he says, I saw thrones of which were set, which were seated, those who had been given authority to judge. They've been granted authority. Not that authority is in them of themselves, but they've been given authority. And they're going to judge and they're going to rule with that authority. And he says, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned. So what he does, he takes really in one sense the very last group just before the millennium. This group that was faithful, that group that went through the tribulation period, that group who would not take the mark, that group who stood fast upon his word, he says, they're going to reign with me. They're going to reign with me. Now, this is Gus Brown. I think I can establish it from Scripture. But you can search it out. But I think at this time, Old Testament saints are going to be there. And New Testament saints are going to be there. And all who have believed upon Jesus Christ is going to be there. Well, I'm putting all that on one verse, on one part here. And I want you to see it. Because it either has to entail all, or it doesn't. He comes on down. He says, They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Why is it that the rest don't come to life until after the thousand years have ended? The rest are those who are unsaved. The rest are the unbelievers. 
And they will not come to life until they are called forth at the white throne judgment. And the sea will give up its dead. And what it is just saying when it says the sea give up, wherever you die at, you're coming forth. That body is coming forth. And it's what he calls it here. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That's the unsaved. Then he says, this is the first resurrection. In the first resurrection, if it's only those who came out of the tribulation, then those who in the church age, there has to be another resurrection. So that would be a second resurrection. Then if you have to have a resurrection for Old Testament saints, then you got a third resurrection. But he says, blessed is he who is in the first resurrection. He's in the first resurrection. And in that first resurrection, I believe it's the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, those who have gone through the tribulation, you got the first resurrection that takes place that brings all those saints out because at that point God is going to use them to judge the world. That's why Paul says, why would you take your brother to court? Don't you realize that you're going to even judge the world? You're going to judge angels? You're going to judge? And he calls it the first resurrection. The first resurrection. Now listen what he says about the second resurrection here also. Because he, he makes it very clear. He says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. Oh, blessed and holy. Happy are you. Because you're in what? That first resurrection. Then he said, the second death has no power over them. And we pick up the second death when Jesus Christ sends those souls, those individuals, back into the lake of fire. And he said, it's called the second death. It's called the second death. The unsaved, the resurrected, only to be sent back into hell. And when we look at the white throne judgment, we'll see a little bit more of that next week, in, in, in two weeks. And he says, boy, they will be priests. What are they going to be? They're going to be priests. It's in the New Testament that the Lord calls us. That we are priests. We are priests. Now we're going to really function as priests. Servants. That's what the word priest means. We're going to really function as the servants of God. And he goes on and he says, Boy, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That those who are Christians, those who are Except Christ during that time, they're going to be able to see the effects of what takes place in the life of those who have followed Christ from Old Testament, church age, right on now. They're going to be able to see. And that they are judged by righteous, holy people. Not sinful people but righteous, holy people 
who have the mind of Christ and desire to do the will of Christ. Stay with me a little bit for about ten more minutes. I'll get you out of here before one o'clock. But I gotta take time and share this. I'm gonna have you out of here before twelve thirty to try to anyhow. My my granddaughter, she just came back and you see what she's doing. She come back off her vacation. She said, Grandpa, we went to church while we was on vacation. And she said, You know, that preacher only preached fifteen minutes. I said, So <laughs> and <clears throat> who will rule with Jesus Christ will be those saints of God from Old Testament church age tribulation period but why do they get such an honor all who come alive in the first resurrection have such an honor to be his priests his saints why do they get to rule with Jesus and not the present saints that are there? I hope we can put this together through Scripture. They all come with a supernatural body. Others who don't have a supernatural body. They come because they are resurrected. They come with a different body than those who live through the millennium and go through the millennium. Those who come with Jesus Christ come with a totally different body than those that are yet here on earth. Others who don't have a supernatural body, they don't have a divine body. They don't have that body yet that is made by the hands of God. They don't have that. The other thing, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two five. he says, there's a perishable there's an imperishable. They still have a perishable body, even though they may live a thousand years, they still have a perishable body. These saints that are judging and ruling the Christ, they have an imperishable. They have an imperishable body. It doesn't grow tired. It doesn't have any weaknesses in it. It is pure. It is holy. It's been through the fire and been tested. There is a body of dishonor. As long as I'm in this body, this body is a body of dishonor because this body has done some things that have dishonored the Lord. And this body will never enter into heaven. It will never enter into heaven. There's a body of dishonor. And then there's a body of glory that God has fashioned and made ready for me. And the only place that is fit for is heaven. And there's a difference there. There's a body of weakness. And then there's a body of power. And they will be in a body of Then there's a natural body. And then there's a spiritual body. One body is for earth. One body is from heaven. Now remember where they're coming from. They're coming from where? From heaven. 
They come with Christ to rule. The scripture tells us flesh and blood of this body will never enter into heaven. And if this body can never enter into heaven, how can I come back with him unless this body has been changed? And the scripture says that, boy, there will be that change for those that are raptured up, that they will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. The body is going to change now. Go with me to First Corinthians. Look at verse 50. Because I think this is a key point of it. That we have to be willing to accept. Because flesh and blood cannot enter. And he, and, and he makes it so clear. And, and we need to understand it. Let me get there. I declare to you, brothers... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The one that is perishing, the one that is going to hell, cannot inherit the same body that we inherit that are going to heaven. Can't do it. Go with me to Romans 8 and then to John 3, 2, because I think this is the critical issue for what takes place in the millennial period here and why. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, let me get there. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of who? His Son. That God, from the moment in which we are truly saved, He predestines us to become like His Son. Now, He who has begun a good work in us, He will continue it until the day in which we see who? Christ. Because as long as we're in this body, God got a sin issue with us. And when I grow through one area, guess what? Something else hinders me. When I hit a new height, something else hinders me. As long as I'm in this body, I will always have problems with sin. I'll always have to deal with sin. Now catch this with me for a moment. I may not commit the sin. But even my mind thinking about it is sin. I may not perform the act. But just thinking about the act is sinful. And this body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, I've been predestined to be like his son. Can you see why those that come back are going to be reigning with him? Let me say it in this way in a sense. You got a bunch of little Jesus sitting on the throne ruling. And he goes on and he simply says, 
predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn, that's Jesus himself, among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That I'm ruling with Christ in a glorified And I've been justified from all unrighteousness that I can perform that which is righteous. Now, go to John 3, 2. And we close out here. Because 1 John 3, 2. He says, Dear friends, Now we are called the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. All that we are going to be in this new body, in that new capacity, in that new creature that we're going to be, we don't really know. We get a little glimpse of it when it says we're going to reign with Christ. But all that we're going to be in heaven, we have no real idea of that. But he says, we don't know. And he goes on, he says, Now we are children of God, and what will be has not yet been made known. But we know, this part we know, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Those who have been resurrected, taken up to heaven, They see him. They see him. And when we see him, we become what? Like him. Like him. See, I'm predestined to be like him, but the finished product doesn't take place until I look him eye to eye and I become like him. When I see him in all his glory, I become like him. I become like him in his righteousness. I become like him in his purity. I become like him in his holiness. I come like him in his glorification. I become like him because I am seeing him. And because I see him, Something takes place radically in me that I've been somewhat striving for down here but can't capture it until I'm there. As much as my heart desires to be like Christ, I have so many falters. But one day those faults will be totally done away with. And when I see him eye to eye, I will be perfected as he is. To know sin no more. Not having to deal with sin anymore. Never have to worry about having a guilt complex. Never have to be ashamed of my past. He takes all of that away. Because why? When I see him, I become totally 
like him. And that's the reason I think they rule. Because those other ones that are there are still in their fleshly bodies. Yes, they're Christians. But they have not seen Jesus in his heavenly glorified presence. They see him on earth. But not on the heavenly part. The earth, yes, he, he rules. But in heaven, angels bow before him. Every time he takes a step, an angel bows before him. Every time he's looked upon, holy, holy, holy. It's a whole different scene that they see of Jesus than what they're going to see on earth. Can you see the difference between the two? Those who will rule, who have been resurrected, and those who have not. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is the teacher because, Lord, he's the one who has to put it together for us. Because, Lord, there are times, Lord, we can read your word and, Lord, it's just something.